0: Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is a by the book episode, a conversation with Rory Shiner. And I am really excited to share with you the conversation that I had with Rory several weeks ago over his book, One Forever. And what Rory and I will get into for a little over an hour on the podcast is a conversation about the richness and the beauty of what the New Testament will call union with Christ. And one of the themes that i have talked about um, repeatedly on the podcast and unashamedly so is the church's lack of understanding about our union with christ and the very close-knit relationship there is intended to be between jesus himself and us as his people or as we've looked at in revelation recently as his bride and rory was one of the first authors that i've come across who really grappled with this idea of union with Christ, our identity being in Christ. And Rory uses a handful of examples. He uses a handful of metaphors. Rory, I think, is kind of like a hero of mine in this way. And that he um, also, but, but to a much greater extent and much better than I can do, manages to read lots of theological and academic works from theologians who talk about the glories and the wonders of the gospel. But Rory realizes that that misses quite a few people in churches who just don't have the uh the intellectual capacity to be able to read these big theological works instead wonder how is this going to help me in my daily life and so that's really what Rory's done with his book it's a very short book which is a testimony to the giftedness he has as a writer and as a communicator he has synthesized monstrous amounts of material Down into a book that is less than 80 pages long, and I will leave a link in the show notes to this episode. If you would like to purchase the book, you won't be able to find it on Amazon. It's through Matthias Media, which has a location in its um, place of origin being in Australia, but there's an American American branch where you can have books shipped to you that way as well. And so, yes, Rory is from Australia, and I know you will appreciate. The accent with which he speaks, but his graciousness, his compassion, his kindness, his real love for the church and his love for the church to the to the extent that we would come to understand the riches, the beauty, the glory, the magnificence of who Jesus has actually made us to be in him. And so I'm thankful for the chance just to share this with you. I I re-listened to our conversation before creating this episode, and it was just an encouragement again, an uplifting, um, wonderful time to just listen to Rory share and have us interact back and forth about why this idea of our union with Christ is so important for the Christian life, for the Christian community, and for the church itself. And so I offer to you a conversation that I have with Rory Shiner Over his book, One Forever. Unbinding the Bible listeners, I'm excited today for this episode on the podcast. It's a by-the-book episode, a conversation that I'm going to have with Rory Shiner. And Rory studied arts at the University of Western Australia and theology at Moore College in Sydney. His PhD is on the life and work of Donald Robinson. He is the senior pastor of Providence City Church in Perth, Australia, where he lives with his wife Susan and their four boys. And he has written books on union with Christ and on the relationship between Jesus' resurrection and our own. He's currently working on a book addressed to unbelievers based on the Apostles' Creed, as well as a book on food in the Bible. And I'm really thankful to have Rory on the show today. Rory, um, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And um, I've decided, I was sharing with Rory a little earlier, that we've decided to just go ahead and and talk about one of his books. It's a book that he wrote in 2012, and I cannot remember for the life of me exactly when I picked it up. But um, it's a very short book. It's simply called One Forever the transforming power of being in Christ. And so for this episode today, I really wanted to focus in on that one. Not that um, Rory's other books aren't great because I've read his one on the resurrection and it's excellent as well. But I'm noticing a theme on the podcast and a theme in my own life and in some of the other interviews that I've been doing. And that is that identity in Christ keeps coming up as a very, very central theme. And Rory, um, just to let you know, of all the things I've studied and read over the years, I think your book was the first one that that Jesus used to really grip me in terms of understanding union with Christ. So thank you for writing this book. Oh, price God. Yeah. So um what I'd really like to do is just for us to get to know you a little bit, Rory, if that's okay. Um, just tell us a, a little bit about yourself, um, some of your your ministry, your family. Um, things that are exciting to you, and um, and then maybe what what led toward toward the writing of, of this book.
1: Great, yeah. So, um, uh, thank you. Great, great to be here. I am um here in Perth, which is on the, the west coast of Western Australia. Um, so if you know uh, Sydney's on, we're sort of directly opposite Sydney. About uh, I think it's about three thousand kilometers, um, to the uh to, to the west. So the kind of the California. End of things, rather than the um, uh, the eastern end of things in the American, um, you know, in comparison with the American continent. Um, and it's a city; it's kind of a mid-sized city, one point eight million, I think we are here. Um, quite a secular situation, and um, quite a secular sort of uh, city. And uh, we're here. I'm pastoring a church called Providence City Church, which, um, as the name suggests, is is closer to the sort of city center. And uh, we've um, planted a church um, to the east of us and uh, have some other um, planting um, hopes and prayers in, in the pipeline. And um, so we're a small network of, of um, churches um, planting other churches uh, here and trying to hold out the word of life um, in Perth. i married to Susan, as you mentioned. We've got four boys. So uh, uh, there's a 14-year-old through to a nine-year-old. And so there's plenty of um, energy in the, in the home. Um, my background was in student ministry, so I, I was um, raised in a fantastic Christian family and was um, commandeered by the Lord for um, uh, for gospel ministry when I was at university, and really um, uh, profoundly impacted um, by by the gospel and uh, um, the work of Jesus on campus. So that was a very transformative experience. And um, so, before and after college, I've been involved in student ministry and in chaplaincy. Um, work on on the campuses and uh, then uh, sort of transitioned into local church ministry and uh, now this church plant. So I've been at at our church here uh, for for seven years. And um, so just this year, in fact, thinking about the next seven years, that's the term that we're put up for and uh, thinking about what the Lord's calling us to um, for this next phase. Um, The the book of uh, Union with Christ, that actually came about with – I was giving talks at a student conference, so that was my background, and I was um, I was down to be speaking at a student conference, and we were talking with the organisers and throwing around um, different ideas. We talked about doing the doctrine of the church. We talked about doing resurrection and so on. We kept coming back to union with Christ because I didn't know the answer to the question, what difference does it make? Um, so I've got a bad habit of teaching or writing on things that I don't know the answer to as a... Um, <laughs> Uh, as a way of um, trying to come to grips with something. And union with Christ was, uh, you know, I had these quotes in my head from, from, uh, from seminary and from elsewhere and reading, you know, you kind of, people would talk about, you know, Calvin's take on union with Christ, how it's like the central way that he puts together his theology. And, and then you would find various quotes, which would say that, Oh, this is the most important thing. And I thought, yeah, probably is, but why, what, what, what actually is it? And uh, why is it so important? And I got frustrated with my own lack of understanding of just thinking, knowing that there was this kind of civil life, that, that it was very important without really being able to substantiate it. And uh, that led to giving a series of talks, and then out of those talks, um, writing the book that we're here discussing.
0: Oh, wow. So you, this was sort of brought to you, and you realized that you you couldn't really answer some of those questions. So this was sort of an exploratory um project for you. Is that is that what I understand you to say?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I, I, it was um it was it came out of as I say, giving these talks and, and particularly uh me feeling frustrated that I I knew that it was important, but I didn't know why. I didn't understand it. And so that those talks and then this book were really that that journey of trying to come to terms. I think especially as a pastor, so I've got a uh a a bit of a background in in research with the phd and so on that you mentioned but really i'm a a, a, that's a side hustle i'm a a pastor and i think as a teaching pastor my job is to take complex things and make make them simple whereas i think in in universities or at seminaries often your job is to take simple things and make them complex and uh um, yeah yes and (laughs) i think my i i was really um uh personally um uh, you know i kept I kept feeling frustrated to hear um great theologians say how important this doctrine was, and i couldn't find it anywhere at the popular level like i couldn't find a book that uh was explaining these things uh to to people without theological educations and i I, I felt there was a kind of almost an equity issue there that if there are these great theologians who are waking up every day delighting in their union with Christ and we have um millions of Christians who, who have never been taught on this, then there's some sort of, um, there's a gift that hasn't been, um, properly distributed to the people of God. So that was really the motivating, motivating force.
0: Wow. And can I just tell you how grateful I am for your genuine love for the church and your true desire to make complicated things easy to understand? Um, because I was a personal recipient of that. And Rory, may, maybe your book gripped me in more ways than one, but that that's become at least a goal of mine in an ideal world, is that people who don't have the time or the energy or the ambition to plow through seven, 800-page theological works need to be able to rest in who they are in Christ. And your book... Um, your book is a gift, and it was a gift to me, and I'm sure it's been a gift to many other people. Um, uh, even the way you lay your book out, um, I'm kind of curious. Um, uh, it's tr- it's perfectly logical. Um, the structure of it, even the chapters themselves. Did did that did that layout unfold as you gave talks? What was each one of the chapters of your book a separate talk, or how did that how did that come together?
1: Uh, so I think I'm just uh, opening up the contents now to remind myself. I think the uh, I think maybe four four of the the seven chapters were were talks were the the basis for for the chapter were um, talks given at the conference that we're talking about this um, uh, national training event of the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, um, and then the uh, the way it, it, in terms of a, a writing process, I think I am. Um, uh, you know, I, I really want, I need to get things simple so that I, and logically laid out so that I can be a disciple and, and learn these things my, myself. And um, uh, yeah, in my, in my writing process, I often, I, I don't know if you, you want to go to this level of detail, but I'll, I'll often um, end up, even though, of course, I'm working uh, on a screen, uh, I'll often print out um the, the pages at various times and just and I remember a couple of times in the process of this book having, if you can imagine this scene, uh, a whole floor space of a large room like the big sort of living area of our house and having uh, all the pages out in front of me, so maybe a, a few square uh, metres of um, of pages there and um, then having a pen and running through and making sure those those connections flow because I, I do think a bit, a bit like preaching and, and so on, um, uh, I, I want to, uh, to make sure there is a flow and that things are building on other things. And, and for me, I don't, maybe this is true of everyone, but I find, um, that's a visual task as much as anything to look at it and think, okay, does that, does that substantiate that? And, uh, um, so that was a real, as you say, it's a short book, I think it's only 77, um, pages. And, um, I think a lot of the work was trying to get it, um, short and, uh, as, um, clear as possible. And, uh, and um, it's very edifying that you say that because w- that was a big part of the the labour for me was to uh, to try and make it flow and um, and make sure that a- at the end you were been brought on a on a journey that made some sense as a as a disciple. Um, often yep. uh, theologians, when they uh, academic theologians, when they're writing books, they're um, they're shadow boxing. They've got conversation partners with, with you know, ancient and modern theologians, and they're battling with ideas. Very important, important work. Um, but I think with this kind of book, you're really wanting to. The conversation partner is a fellow disciple, and you're really trying to uh, have a conversation together um, to say, you know, if, if if we start this journey, where do we want to end up by by the end of it? So that's that's the way I thought about the shape of it.
0: Yeah, well, and I really I I loved it. And so I I, kind of like the way you introduced this tonight, just saying here was a topic you didn't know much about, you didn't even know, why is this important? Why does this matter? And um, it's funny, as I worked through various portions of the Bible on my podcast, which is kind of the the point of, of the podcast, I don't know that I've ever really stopped and sort of explained some of the 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 basic things that you walk through in this book which is just a very helpful clear presentation of why union with christ matters and and yet so i just wondered if maybe we could uh, like i said I, i wrote down just a few notes under each of your chapter titles but i thought what if i could just maybe refer you to a quote and just let you sort of talk a little bit your way through the book do you feel comfortable doing that yeah absolutely great so you're very, uh, I guess I, I, I kind of skipped past the first chapter when I was writing some notes, but your, your first main section, the uh, the incarnation, just looking at, you know, God in the flesh and why the incarnation was necessary. And you made a, a statement on page 28 that in the incarnation, God enters into all that we are and is united to all that we are so that all that we are can be healed and redeemed, and I, I thought that one sentence sort of functioned as a summary um, of that of that section. The the incarnation. Could you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Kind of explain, maybe why is that so important for us to to grasp?
1: Yeah, I think that that's uh, that that first chapter and that that quote. That's my best shot, really, at capturing w- what I think of as the b- great patristic I- insight. So. Um, the, the, uh, the patristic era, the church fathers, Augustine to Athanasius and um, uh, the Gregories and um, that, that early church at the time of the councils and so on, um, one of their big challenges was um, in a Greco-Roman background that often you had a, a sense that, that flesh was um, human flesh to be a person, um, to be carnate, which comes from the uh, you know we have the Latin word uh, carne, which is um, meat, and uh, so if you order, at least in Australia, if you order a carne pizza, you're getting the meat lovers pizza. And um, okay, yeah, the um, uh, the in in uh, Greek and Roman thinking, um, uh, the the idea that where meat is a that, that where flesh is a is a problem, not a it's a it's a bug, not a feature. And so there was this huge problem for the early church of um, the scriptures seem to be clearly saying that Jesus was a man, uh, had flesh and blood uh, like us, and um, and for uh, for many people at that time that that felt undignified. It felt like that's a kind of a bit gross to think of God becoming flesh. It's there's a there's a lack of dignity in that. And as the early as the fathers uh, grappled with what what does our faith teach? And there was, you know, heresy and orthodoxy really went along those two lines of whether you were prepared to affirm that Jesus was both God and man. And uh, that's the background to that struggle, that aversion to um, the, the the incarnate nature of human life. And uh, I think that the great insight of the early church was that, was asked the question, why, why does God become one of us? And why does he so totally become one of us? He doesn't just, he doesn't, come to us in a Haskem suit. He doesn't come to us wearing um, protective clothing. He comes to us in our flesh and participates in our life. And I think that's the, the, the key insight of, um, of the Patristics is that he, uh, I think as Athanasius says, what he did not assume he could not heal. And uh, mm. so why does Jesus become so like us in every way, eating, drinking, Asking who touched me in the crowd, uh, suffering—it's because um, all of us, God is on a mission um, to save us in our entirety, the, the whole me. Um, which is something you see in baptism. So I'm not uh, wanting to open a kind of uh, mode of baptism debate, but in the in the tradition of fully immersing a person, putting someone entirely under the water. Part of the symbolism is that it's all of you that goes there. You're not subcontracting out, you know, here's my violin teacher that teaches me violin and here's Jesus that teach, teaches me ethics and here's, um, you know, here's the guy that teaches me me maths. That so you give your entire self over to Jesus and uh, God in the incarnation gives all that is him uh, to be united with all that is us because it's it's the whole of us uh, that he's uh, in the business of saving.
0: Oh, and that's so beautiful, just how you've even worded that just here. And you you say, you know, it's not something, sin is not something, or our rebellion against God is not just something that affects our minds or our hearts or our bodies. It affects all of us. And I I think the the bodies as well has been something that has been gripping me in, in recent weeks and months is to realize that we are we are embodied creatures so we, you know we have spirits and we have a soul and we have minds and emotions but it is in a body and and yeah we don't view it like like an ancient culture where this is something gross and we need to throw this off but that god affirms both spirit and body in coming in the flesh and just what does that mean for the way that we treat other bodies, we treat our own body. And I just, it's, it's gripping me in ways that even rereading your book, I thought I, I didn't understand some of these things eight years ago when I read your book, but what you're saying is, is even more true as I, as I continue to grow. Um, It's just, and so you, so you're saying then that in the incarnation, the son of God is united to us. And then on, on page 31 in your next chapter, you say then in salvation we are united to Him and Rory that's one of those ideas that you <laughs> you have gr- grabbed a hold of a lot of theological thinking and you just squeezed it into a really simple sentence so um, can you if you're ready to move on to the salvation part um, but can you can you talk to us about that that comparison there for the incarnation with also salvation.
1: Yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's right, that, the, that in the incarnation, uh, God uh, humbles himself in, in his son and becomes united, completely identifies with us, um, doesn't find us uh, shameful or uh, beyond redemption, he touches and comes into each, all of our human existence, including our, our bodies, which are, as, you, as you rightly say, uh, um, you, you can't detach us. We, are, we um, humans don't have bodies, we are bodies. And uh, yeah. where we're integrated uh, wholes and God doesn't come to save our mind or our soul, but but all of us. And then in in salvation, that's right. So, so God is God is pleased in in his great glory and humility to be united to all that we are, and in salvation, um, we are united to to him. We are bought uh brought together, um, included in Christ Jesus. And and the language there, and this is the I think at the heart of to my mind at least breaking open the doctrine that the the most common language in the bible for what we call being a christian uh, or maybe being saved or or being a disciple the most common language for that state of affairs is that we're in christ um that we're in him or that we're united to him and I think that's really the um the puzzle that the book is a, a shot at um uh, trying to unlock that puzzle, that why why is it that the Bible habitually describes salvation in ways that we don't, which is that we're in Christ, that we're in the Messiah, and um, I think in uh, in that chapter, that's what I'm trying to um, come to terms with: that uh, that union um, union with Christ is not just it's not just one of the things that we get; uh, it is the it is the means by which we get all the things. Um, so uh, we have redemption and salvation and uh, we have forgiveness of sins and hope of the future and sanctification. How do we have all those things? Well, we have them in Christ. They are, they are by virtue of being united with him. And I think that's the real, maybe the turning point in breaking open this doctrine is to understand it not as one on the list of things that we get. So we get salvation and we get uni- union with Christ and we get justification, no, it, it, is, it is the thing that encompasses the means by which we have all those things is because we are in, uh, in the Messiah and then therefore we are safe in him. So, you know, if, um, uh, Psalm 2 says, um, uh, talks about the Messiah of Israel and says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so here is this place in which, uh, in which we have salvation because we are captured in, in the Messiah.
0: Yes, and just hearing you say it again, it's so it's just so beautiful and and I I have begun to study that and just recognize the language that has always been there um but that the Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the place. Jesus is um, you know where we die and then where we find new life um, in the resurrection. And so a, a question that's bothered me for a while and I wondered if you, stumbled over it or tried to work through it, but as you identify, you know, Paul's most often used phrase, in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ, how how is it that I could grow up in the church and never know that? And you found yourself, I'm not even sure how old you were when you were getting ready to do these lectures, but that you were like, I don't really think I understand that. So I mean, how, how do you, do you understand that happening in the church? And of course we're talking about the church, at least as it is expressed in two separate continents, but it sounds like our experience was somewhat similar. Mm. Um, what, what do you have any kind of insight? And I know this might just be a guess unless you have really studied this, but how have we missed this?
1: Yeah. I, so I've got, um, theories rather than, um, yeah, I've got, uh, yeah, I, I, similar to you, I think, um, uh, I had that um, perplexity, I guess, that how is the most common um, language in scripture um, for the experience of salvation not a, a language that I discovered in my, I guess, my 30s, having been in churches my whole life and, and following Jesus for a long time. Um, I think there are a few forces at play. I think one is the the question that we opened with. I think that um, for whatever reason, this, this doctrine of union with Christ has tended to be, in the purview of theologians and in academic theology, and uh, often recognised there, but um, has not, for for whatever reason, uh, been often written on in uh, in popular devotional and discipleship material. So I feel like there's been a some sort of bottleneck in the academy where these things have been uh, known and enjoyed, but they're not uh, made available to the people of God in in language they can understand. I think there are some. Uh, particular issues in in Western culture, which is the culture that you and I both both share. Um, so the Enlightenment, um, in particular, but other forces in our culture have tended to introduce those um, binaries of um, uh, you know uh, body and soul, and um, that religion is a private activity, and um, and um, other things are public activity. So you have this uh, this series of binaries that tend to um, push off religious life into private, devotional, recreational weekend activities, um, and the rest of life is over here in, in the secular realm. And that kind of thinking makes this kind of uh, doctrine a little bit harder for us to get at because we're so used to thinking of Jesus as a personal, um, uh, our personal saviour who is basically our um, sin management strategy and he has a finite set of jobs that he's working in us. And um, and then we subcontract other stuff off to other people. And that's just not how um, Christianity frames our relationship to Jesus. And so I think there's a bit of a mismatch there in the way we've tended to think about um, faith and, uh, and the way we've been shaped. And then I think related to that, it's, um, you know, to be fair, I think especially in the West, but um, uh, maybe more broadly, it just is an odd concept because... If you say you're in Christ, you're using um, what what they call in in Greek uh, grammar locative language, which is to say uh, it's language that's to do with a location. So in, over, above, under, through—they're all telling you where an object is, and um, that's a bit odd because uh, where am I? The Bible the, the Bible is saying i am somewhere i'm in christ and you think how is that because i'm not obviously not physically in christ and in in one sense christ is not a location in the way that perth or, or seattle or birmingham are locations um christ is a person not a not an address and yet the language of union with christ of being in christ is inviting us to think about christ as a kind of address as a as a place where we are and um I think until that is um, is is explained and teased out, it doesn't come naturally to us uh, because you have to make that move. Now, I think for ancient people and I think for other cultures, especially um, uh, in the majority world, in, in places like Africa and so on, it's not as foreign as it is to us um, because there you have that much stronger ancestral sense that I am in my father's, that I'm not an autonomous individual and, um, who is detached from a series of relationships, but in a sense, I am. I am caught up in my ancestors, and I am in this community, and in this tribe, and in this village. And uh, if you're able to think like that, then the the idea of union with Christ isn't as foreign. Uh, whereas I think um, in the West, for those historic reasons, and for our our concept of the the isolated individual, um, uh, we've um, we've found it hard to think about, uh, ourselves as fundamentally located in another person. Um, and that's the, uh, that's the mindset shift that I think this, uh, this doctrine invites us to.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have looked into that a little bit. Those were excellent responses and I, I can resonate with each one of the three, but you, you articulated that very well. And I, I like your locative language. Um, I think, you know, I think even way back in Second Samuel seven, um, when when the Lord is promising David, David wants to build the Lord a house, and then the Lord says to David, "I'm going to build you a house." And it's a it's mm-hmm. it's one of the first times that I can remember where where you know that it's not a play on words per se, but it's it's almost you know David is clearly talking about a house being a building, and the mm-hmm. Lord talks about a house and we know pretty soon thereafter that he's referring to a dynasty. But at the that's one of the first times where a building and then you know it's the Lord means it to be people. And then of course Jesus stands in the temple in John 2 and says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And so you know there's obvious confusion there, but but Jesus does walk around talking about himself as a place and it's <laughs> which of course union with Christ as you're describing here is central for us to understand how Paul can then say we are the temple mm-hmm. um the temple of the holy spirit i mean the these ideas it, it, it's what's so what's so exciting about this to me is is you are able to by by drawing our attention to union with Christ it it, it seems like maybe this is a hinge that opens up being able to understand so many other uh, themes and metaphors might be the word for it that, that scripture uses so freely. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. W- would you be able to share you, you use a, a fantastic illustration, one that I unashamedly have stolen and used in numerous contexts over the the years, but the one where you, you use the locative idea um, in reference to an airplane, um, and I, I think you'll know what I'm referring to, but could you kind of give us that illustration just for listeners who've never read your book? Sure.
1: So that's a, that was an illustration that um, uh, kind of uh, was really an attempt to, to grasp this locative idea and its, its implications for it. So the, here's the illustration is to say that um, uh, here's, here's an airplane and, uh, and say imagine yourself at the airport and you're looking through, through the windows and you're looking at the airplane and the question is, what relationship do you need to have with that airplane uh, in order to receive its benefits? Say that the, the, the plane is going from uh, 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 for, from New York to New Orleans and you, you want to be in New Orleans and uh, you're currently in New York. You look at that plane, what what relationship do you need to have to it? And the question uh, is, do you need to You know, do you need to follow it? Is it a directive idea that the plane is going to New Orleans and if you get out on the airport uh, runway and and chase it, um, you'll be heading in the right direction? Or do you need to be inspired by the plane? Are you supposed to be at the airport looking out the window and just listfully thinking, oh, that plane can do it and that inspires me to also do what that plane's about to do? Uh, Do you need to be under the plane, you know, submitting to the authority of the plane? Do you need to... uh, you know, have the plane in your heart and uh, of course the answer is no to all of those things the fundamental relationship you need with that plane which is going to the destination that you want to go to is that you need to be in the plane and i think that's my best crack at, at breaking open that locative language that I, I think the bible is saying the benefits of christ uh the love of the father the the, the hope of salvation the joy of the spirit the um anticipation of the world to come uh, sanctification they are ours by virtue of being in christ because if if we're in christ uh then we have what he has and we're going where he's going and so you know the answer to the question are you, you going to get to louisiana is well are you in the plane if you're not if you're not in the plane who, who knows probably not but if you're in the plane then the answer is that you will end up where that plane is going. Now, that's the that's the kind of basic illustration um, to to unpack union with Christ, being in Christ, and it also um, I think the illustration is intended to help us to think about the um, the objective nature of being in Christ. Because I think one of the great struggles that I see the evangelical Christianity and in being a pastor and so on is a, is a lack of assurance that people feel timid about their salvation and wonder whether they really are saved or whether um, Christ has got them or whether the Father really loves them and so on. And uh, I think that that locative language is there to help us because it, it, here's the further illustration. Imagine there's two people on, getting on that plane and, um, one is uh say a uh, uh, a businesswoman who who does that flight every week because there's a there's a board meeting or a committee and and she's just going back and forth uh, back when the planes used to fly. We're doing this during corona so um uh, if you can remember when the planes were up there uh, the you know and so she she gets in with huge confidence. she just uh, you know reads the paper, goes to the um the pre-flight club, has a cup of coffee, gets on the plane. Hugely confident about the plane's ability to deliver her to that destination. And imagine another, uh, you know, say an elderly gentleman who's, um, for whatever reason, this is the first time he's ever been on a plane. And so he's hes not confident. He's full of doubts and, and fears and, you know, gets to the airport early and gets on the plane and he's sweating and um, putting his seatbelt on and, and diligently following people. Um, the safety instructions um from the from the crew and uh, and taking notes and so on and and at several times during the flight he talks to one of the um you know one of the start one of the one of the crew and says I'm, just, I'm really worried i've got my doubts about this plane it seems so big and heavy and how could it possibly make it all the way uh to new orleans and uh you know, and so there you've got a picture of, if I can put it this way, of faith and doubt. The, the woman's full of faith. She's very confident about the plane. The man's full of doubts. He's um, very worried about the plane's ability to do what it says it can do. And so if you ask the first question, which of those two people has more faith? It, it is it's the woman. She, she, she has huge confidence in that plane's ability to deliver, and the man is full of doubt. And then you ask the second question, which of those two will make it to their destination? And suddenly, the levels of faith and doubt are almost completely irrelevant, because they the the question of whether they will make it is nothing to do with how confident they are, and everything to do with where they have placed their confidence. So, if the if the plane is going to get there, they're going to get there, and they're both going to get there. And that's. Um, that's my pastoral shot at, at trying to help myself and um, and our people to understand the that that fundamental truth. I think that our that salvation is not to do with how much faith we have, but in whom we place our faith. That we are, if we are in Christ, then there's an objectivity to um, uh, to our hope of salvation because we the question is not um uh am i trying hard enough am i running fast enough but but where am i and if i'm uh you know it jesus the the father loves the son and uh the the answer to the question does god love me is he loves me as much as he loves jesus because i'm in yeah. him and his um the father's affection for me is total not based on my performance today but based on the fact that I'm in the one that he loves and I, 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 um, I guess my, my hope and prayer is that I think the more that we can grasp that um, the more joy we experience and I think uh, the more the more faithfulness, the, the better lives that we will, the more pleasing lives we will live because um, we're not constantly checking our shoulders over our shoulders to make sure we're performing at the, uh, at the rate that God will, uh, love us because we are loved in in his son.
0: Yeah, that's, it's, it's just so great. Um, because the, that's, that's, I think it's an excellent illustration by the way. And, and I've often looked at it, you know, and, and maybe I picked this up from you. Um, but it's just, you know, where Jesus is, we are so i think this is paul's idea in romans 6 so when jesus died if i'm in him and jesus was nailed to the cross then that is where my life went and you know he he literally calls us to to die and i think that just means all of those places where we might otherwise seek an identity for ourselves um jesus seems to be saying the identity that you will be most complete in is the identity as one deeply loved by me and by my father. And mm-hmm. to, to place us in that place by grace is to also invite us in, and maybe that's it too, is, is to challenge us to relinquish all other, all other identities. And, and I, I guess I, I loved Getting to your chapter four, I'm going to go ahead and then I'm going to back up a minute, but y- your chapter four was, was focusing in on justification. And and I think in my upbringing, justification was the one that was front and center. Um, it was at the top and, um, and, and, and I'm not to say that it, that is not important, but I, I don't, I think it's much easier to understand justification when you understand, um, union with Christ, at least as far as I grasp it. But you, you do point out that, you know, whenever we look for justification, significance and security in things other than in Christ, those things will eat us up. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, it's, it's both a, a free offer. You know, that salvation is free, but it, it will cost us everything. And the cost us everything part that I think Jesus is calling us to is to say, there are quite a few other identities and things that you're looking for for significance you're going to have to let those things go <laughs> mm-hmm. and and they hurt initially but if he really does love us that deeply then it is really a huge invitation to have him search us and know us yeah. and strip us away from all of those things that um that maybe to follow your illustration all those things that make us sweat when we're on the plane I'm like we don't have to sweat when we're on the plane. <laughs> we yeah. can sit back with a coffee and read a magazine or close our eyes if we want and just enjoy um, the blessings. Mm. But um you, you had said um, in your chapter 3 then on salvation, you said Paul's favorite idea is in him, but there are a lot of other metaphors that the New Testament uses. Um you mentioned um some of them almost sound like we are stuck to Jesus in some way. Um, <laughs> you, you brought up conversation about the sacraments, about um, agricultural or sexual or biological images. I mean, do you do you understand some of these in the same way um, in terms of metaphors and, and our trouble sometimes as Westerners to to be able to track with these kinds of metaphors? Like how, how would you help us try to understand those?
1: Yeah, I think that I think they I think they I think they're, they're very helpful to us as Westerners because I think that that dominant language of in the the locative idea of being in Christ because we for those reasons that you and I were just uh, discussing they they are um, uh, difficult concepts for for modern Westerners to to grasp and I think the 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 other metaphors in the in the Bible because obviously it would be a, it would be a um, be a tactical mistake in understanding the doctrine of union with Christ just to um, do a word search for the word in Him or in Christ and think that. Once you've exhausted all of those, that's everything the Bible has to say about union with Christ. Because as you, as you rightly say, there are all these pictures. So, um, uh, as you say, there's um, there's the biological idea, there's the agricultural idea. So the you are the I am the vine, and you are the branches. That's a that's a union picture, and. Yeah. Um, uh the the marriage picture the you know adam and eve where th- when they come together in, in the garden it's a kind of a reunion the two become one flesh because they were once one flesh and they come back together um and I think they are all um uh yeah i think i guess powerful powerful ways of um of grasping union with christ and i think uh, important because they help us to once really we've grasped that fundamental locative idea um they help us to parse out some of the nuances of that. So I think, um, uh, you know, one of the one of the pictures of union with Christ um, is a churchly picture of the body, which you get in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, where um, we are united to Christ um, as the church. Though there it's not just thinking me, Rory Shiner, walking down the street by myself and united to Christ, so the Bible says that, but me... As part of my church community, uh, are united to Christ, and in in that picture, Paul's really leveraging the unity and diversity, so that um, in my union with Christ, I am both both uh, completely enveloped in Christ in my identity and my 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 stance before the Father, and my diversity is preserved in the church that i am gifted to the body of christ as a hand or a foot or an eye or a ear and not as the other thing and so uh, something like the body metaphor helps helps us i guess to start to tease out that here i am united to christ and so you and i are talking and we both are as we both experience the same love of the father because we're not loved by performance or ethnicity or Uh, education where we're loved in the sun and yet as I go and participate in my local church I recognize that I am not like the other people here that I have particular gifts and strengths and weaknesses and lacks and um through the the body I think that's what Paul's saying that the the body is a unity that it's one thing and yet the body is a diversity of many many parts and so um some of these metaphors help us to come back and plug in some of those complexities of of our unity and diversity, and uh, and plug them into the the church or um, the the more marital sexualized unions. I think speak of the um, uh, of of love and embrace and and closeness, um, and the, I mean the sacraments again. That I, it's really interesting to me having. Um, a bit like we were saying earlier, having grown up in the churches but not understood union with Christ, it's weird to come back and think, "Oh, wait the two the two gifts that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Supper and baptism they're both union ideas. Because I don't all of me is given over to baptism, and I consume all of the bread and the wine that's given to me. So one is a picture of me being put into the water. The other one is a picture of me taking into myself. Um, all that Christ is and so I think all of them are like a, you can think about it like this, at the, at the centre of the thing is the, the locative idea of being in Christ and then you have this kaleidoscope of other union ideas that are both illustrations of that central idea but also extensions of the central idea helping us to tease it out into community and affection and, um, uh, and, and so on.
0: Yeah, and I, a kaleidoscope, I think, is a great way to say it because it at different times and it from a different angle or with a different slightly different lens. You know, it it's really beautiful to me to read so many of the New Testament letters and not just say, Oh, look, Paul has decided to talk about this metaphor here, but rather he seems to choose his metaphors in specific contexts in which those metaphors make more sense. So I, I always love to find, you know, what does he say to the Ephesian church and why does he choose this metaphor when he's talking to them, but he pulls a different one out when he's talking to the church in Philippi. And I don't always know the answer to that, but but beginning with him saying, he's trying to just make the gospel real to yeah. the various churches that he's writing to. And And I had a conversation with uh, another author several weeks ago, and we were looking at the idea that Paul is simply trying to embody the gospel for his churches, and he wants them to embody it as well. He's not necessarily just sitting down trying to write some theological treatise for these churches to, you know, tuck away in a Bible study somewhere. Like, he wants them to to experience this and to experience, you know, union with Christ. And then you turn right around and say, because that's true, Mm -hmm. your unity with one another in your diversity can be and should be a reflection of the kind of unity that Jesus created for you um, by uniting you to him. So it's always this, here's what Jesus has done. Now, based on this new reality, here's how you are supposed to live. And yeah. it's so refreshing and inviting and convicting all at the same time. It it seems like um, I don't know. I guess it seems like good news, right? That's <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely, and it is. Um, I, I think um, uh, within what you say, that it, it is. It, it's a re- it's a great um gift of the New Testament, and actually, it's only been it's only been very recently, really, the last two hundred years where there's such a thing as a. Full-time theologian that doesn't also have pastoral responsibilities. That's a um that's an unusual development in our culture. And so if you read the New Testament, there I don't think there's a single point at which the a writer's task that they thought of themselves as, I'm going to sit down and write a systematic theology, they were absolutely thinking, I've got to solve some problems in Corinth. There are people um, sleeping with prostitutes and um, causing divisions and you know these are all live pastoral issues and and as you say I think the best the best way we don't always know the answer but the best way to account for the diversity even within Paul's writing is that is that he's a pastor and he's and there are different situations and you know right there you know you read Augustine I was reading Augustine the other day and um, he wouldn't pass a theology exam because he's constantly praying and <laughs> he's constantly you know <laughs> the, all of the confessions are, They're not, you know, in this thing I seek to set out, you know, philosophy, He's that it's literally a prayer to God. And in the last 200 years, we've come to think of that, well, that lacks objectivity. And um, that's just not how theology has been done for most of history. So I wonder if that maybe is part of the clue to where um, this understanding of union has been, and other things, has been um, slightly withheld from the people of God that we have, um, and I'm certainly not saying that that, that ought not to be the case. I'm a great beneficiary of seminaries and of theologians, but it is a, it's an occupational hazard of the way we've arranged things that um, that prayer in a theology essay looks odd. That subjectivity that saying I'm invested in this. We we that that, that there's an I here who's doing this thinking and writing this essay that that is invested in, in the God that I'm trying to speak about. It's just a, it's a um, odd moment in history that we've configured things that way.
0: Yeah. Well, then that, that goes then more to why I'm very thankful for you who can both um, remain in the church and see people day in, day out who aren't asking the big highfalutin theological concepts um but yet you you know even in your book like you said it's only 70 80 pages but you you were definitely interacting with some pretty monstrous thinkers of of the last 500 years and just with little footnotes at the bottom and no one else might even know that you're reading you know nt writes the resurrection of the son of god and and but you're just bringing it down for everyone else, so it's it's <laughs> you're you're a gift there in multiple ways because there is tremendous value in what they've been able to see in the academy. But it 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 does often sadden me that that seems out of reach um, for some. And and I I've appreciated how you'll even say something like you know one one commentator said this, and then I look at the footnote and it's N.T. Wright, and I think oh well, I mean N.T. Wright, he's not just one commentator. I mean he's a great he's a great voice, but. That's irrelevant to the people in our church. They don't care. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I've that's, had to,
1: and that's it. what a what a it's um, a much more um, generous way of making the same point that maybe the the best way forward is that that sort of partnership where we have each other's backs and you have people in the academy who do this extraordinary work of um, of delving into original sources and so on, and then and uh, you know partnering with with pastors on that front line. That's a that's a great way of thinking about it.
0: Yeah. Well, and I've had to watch that myself because I, I'm drawn to people like N.T. Wright and 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 others who are just able to put things so succinctly. And so I'll sometimes come and I'll, oh, he made this paragraph and it was so well worded. Let me just quote him in my sermon. And sometimes my people look at me with blank stares or they'll say, you're just talking over our heads. And I realize nobody cares about that. They, they want to know what this is going to look like in their life on Monday morning. And so I, I think that's another refreshing thing about your book is um, you know, you 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 I like your chapter title here, chapter five, you said, you know, in which we face some playground bullies. So let's talk about union and how that relates to sin. And, you know, yeah, that this isn't just a theological concept. This is gonna deal with how we overcome sin in our actual lives. And if we're if we know we're deeply loved and we're secure in Jesus, then we're free to be able to look at some of those sins that continue to plague us and and burden us. And if I could just read one quote you uh, said on page sixty, um, you know you you had been talking about we we are made aware of sin in our lives possibly through guilt or we hear of sermons convicting or something, and it says you said. The problem is that many of us think that because guilt alerted us to the problem, it will also help us to get out of the problem, but it can't. And so what is the solution? Only a great acquaintance with the privileges of Christ can free us from the snares of sin. Mm. And I think that that was really powerful to me because I, I can't even say that my context growing up taught me that guilt would get me out. But the way I had um, internalized it was um, that I should just feel bad about it, and that was somehow going to help me. Um, could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Thanks. Uh, you were just talking Next. about the yeah that quote about the um, the playground bullies and um, guilt, not um, the acquaintance of union with with, uh, with the privileges of Christ.
0: Yeah, that's right. And just how I had picked up, I think somehow, just oh goodness, you know, I it's just. I got I to gotta try really hard next time or I'm going to, you know, maybe walk my way back into the graces of God um, based on this problem. Um, but realizing that it's recognizing who I actually am and looking at my identity isn't in whether I do a great job of following him or not. And And yet, so I'm not trying to climb out of this doldrums in order to be in his graces again. But can you talk a little bit about ways that you've seen that um, be helpful in pastoral ministry?
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that I think that that is a huge uh, a huge learning for me in in writing the book and um, and trying to grow in my understanding and living of these things myself is exactly what you say that I think um, guilt. uh, uh, i think I think of guilt as kind of like a, a burglary like an alarm system it 's very good at alarming you. you think i shouldn't be here i shouldn't be looking at this i shouldn't be talking like this um and the problem is because we we know that guilt has a good a very um effective role in alarming us we think oh well we 're going guilt guilt can do more than that it can actually train me in godliness and so on and i think that's not right that um we can be thankful for guilt as an alarm system, but it's a pretty um in this fallen world, it's a bit of a wonky alarm system. So sometimes guilt, sometimes that alarm system goes off when it ought not to. That is just it's it's a false alarm. There's no problem here, and yet we feel uh, we have overly tender consciences. Or sometimes it doesn't go off when it ought to. That uh, I've seen people in pastoral ministry trash their marriages and be absolutely sure that they their conscience is clear because this new person came along and it was just clear to them that in their heart that's the person they were supposed to be with. And so at that point, guilt turned out to be completely useless because it just wasn't presenting. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, that union, that, that the, the mechanism by which we grow up and out of sin um, has to do with, with knowing who we are In Jesus and living that out which sounds simple but I think it does make a material difference because if you are someone who um if you're approaching sin in your life so let's say um say you're struggling with with gossip that just a a besetting sin in your life is that you make yourself feel better by talking about other people badly that's a a common strategy Uh, I've deployed it myself where I think uh, I'm not happy about how things are going so I just talk about people who are doing worse than me and then I'll feel better. Terrible thing to do um, and sinful. Now, if you are convicted of that and you think, I shouldn't be doing this, um, say guilt does its proper work of being the alarm, alerting you to a problem, then you've got two choices. Either you think you hear the voice, which I think is is ultimately the, a, a satanic voice, the voice that says, yeah, but Rory, that's, that's who you are because, Rory, just remember that you're, in Jesus, you're kind of faking it until you make it. You're just a, you're really, a, you're, you're a dirty sinner that's, um, uh, that has no right to be uh, in the love of the Father and now that you've gossiped again, you're just revealing your true cards. That that's, you're actually just a dirty, a dirty, sinful gossiper who is um, snuck into a temple that he's got no right to be in and it's now time to get out and go back to where you belong. Now that's a very different thing from and from saying, hey, Rory, why why are you gossiping again? That's not who you are. You are you are before the Father, um with in the Son, therefore you you in him have the full right to stand before the Lord and know his love and forgiveness and redemption. So why are you behaving as if you're outside this thing? Because you're not. And if he if you play out those two trajectories, I, I reckon that over time they land in very different places, because the person that every time they sins, every time they sin, they think to themselves, "Oh yeah, that's that's who I am." Um, you've just got this compounding effect over time that I am a fake and a fraud, and I don't really deserve to be here. And this is, um, you know, I say Christian in inverted commas, but I'm just a, I'm just a fake. Um, that's a, that's debilitating because you see that your true self is the Mm -hmm. sinful self. And I think actually that's not true, that in Christ, the truer, deeper, stronger, better you, the you that will um, come into the new creation is the one that's been renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And so when you sin as a Christian, in a sense, you're speaking a foreign language. You're doing a thing that is now no longer true of you. Uh, whereas when you live in righteousness and holiness, you are not faking it till you make it. Till you make it, you're you're living out the truer, deeper you that God is calling you to be. And I think, um, you know, I, I worry that that sounds a bit, um, uh, you know, airy fairy or, or insubstantial. But I think I think if you've struggled with sin, it does make a real difference to think. Um, here's a thing that I want to put away of of lust or gossip or slander or um aggression and to see that as i want to get rid of it because it's not me anymore is a very different thing thing of saying oh i shouldn't do that but in actual fact that's who i am
0: yeah that's right and and it doesn't sound airy fairy or however you put it i i know even uh, cs lewis talks about something similar toward the end of mere christianity um i think it's in a chapter in book 4 called let's pretend and he, he kind of talks about a little boy playing with his figurines and how he, he just imagines that this is, you know, the real war that he's in with these little figures and, and he talks about how as Christians we try on this identity of of Christ and being accepted before Him, and after a while we begin to act into that what we imagine ourselves to be. And I mean, I think that's His fun, playful way of getting at this idea that you're talking about, at least as I read Him. Um, I I I,
1: I know that passage well, and I love it. I think that's exactly right. That where which actually helps with another another challenge that our common culture faces is the the kind of cult of authenticity, where you can't possibly do anything unless you're completely. you know, in it, uh, in yourself. Whereas, actually, I think uh, part of union with Christ is that uh, okay. Yesterday, I prayed when I woke up, and it felt great. And today, I prayed, and it felt like I was talking to the ceiling. And um, that's okay. That, that we're not we're not saved by our feelings or our ability to generate a sense of authenticity. It does give you that thing to say. Well, listen, I'm going to go to church today, um, not because I want to, but because it's Sunday. And I'm a Christian and I want to be with the people of God. That, And uh, I think it gives you a bigger range of, um, of being able to think, well, I'm going to do this because this is who I am, which is, you know, like say you're, I've taken up running recently and um, I do like running or maybe a better way to say it, I do like having run. <laughs> uh, uh, <just> many, times, <laughs> many times during the week where I wake up uh, and it's time for a run and the only reason I go, honestly, is because I promised myself earlier that that's when I'd go um but I never regret it afterwards and um I think there, there are parts of Christian discipleship there where we um that that brilliant chapter from Lewis is is exactly right that we can um begin to act out that identity because it's real and a bit like learning a new golf swing or a new um uh running technique you you have to rinse and repeat rinse and repeat rinse and repeat uh not because you're earning that place, but because you have that place and you're working it out.
0: That's right. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, when he calls us a new creation, you know, we, we have to learn a whole new way of being. So, and, and I feel like we, we I mean, this, this is sort of coming to me now, but I almost wonder if, if deep down in us, we kind of think, okay, sure, we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear son, but we're sort of like working our way there like we're kind of trying to get rid of it, but it's like, no, he's, he's fully immersed you into something new. You're going to need to learn how to, and I think this is the abiding language. You know, you, you need to learn to obey. You need to learn to abide in my teaching. Mm-hmm. Then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I, I think I, I remember growing up thinking, oh, I just need to know the truth and the truth will set me free. But that's that's kind of reducing me as a person to something that's just a mind that I think about. And I think Jesus actually says, no, when you abide in my teaching, you you actually rest in it and trust it and, and act on it in the moment when you're tempted to step outside. Like you're saying, oh, I'm just a terrible person. I can't do it. No, in that moment, you rest in the truth. And when you abide in that, he says, "Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." So it's this strange, you know, experience meets belief, kind of intertwined. It feels like at times, um, yeah. And so, really yeah, that I, I you know, because it it kind of as we or as we sort of coming to the end, I just I'm thinking, you know, listening to you talk about this is who you are and living out of this identity, and I I would think, what a beautiful reality. That would be if um, if all of the people of God together in a church were able to see each other through that same lens. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think maybe this is what Paul's getting at in so many of his letters is just if if our churches, if if we could all grasp this and be gracious and compassionate and kind with each other, um. I really yes. think it would, it I would do change think we often, uh
1: Both in, in pastoral ministry, in pastoral leadership, and in our one another ministry, I, I think we're, we're more shy than the Bible is of declaring uh, how loved we are, even uh, as we struggle with sin. So, you know, you think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, where you think about the presenting issue there is, and not to, I know this is a family podcast, but um, it, it's, um, you know, the presenting issue is young men from the church visiting prostitutes. And my, yeah. that's a terrible thing. That should not happen. That's awful, right? That's, a, that's an awful thing. And Paul thinks it's an awful thing. It's absolutely DEFCON 1. This is terrible. But Paul says you ought not to do that because you are united to Christ. And the one who's united to Christ should not also be united to a prostitute. So he looks at those young men and his first instinct is to say, like I would say, like you would say, don't do that. That is not right. But he says it's not right. Because you are in Christ. Whereas I think my instinct to coming to come into terms with these things might have been to think, oh, they're probably not really Christians. That There's no way a real Christian would be. Yeah. That. And I think that's a very different way of looking at our communities. I think that's how God looks at us is to say, as our, now there is such a thing as false faith and there are such things as people who are revealed um, to, to not be true followers of Jesus. But the instinct in, in Paul and the New Testament is to say, if someone is in Christ, then I want to speak to them as severely and seriously and earnestly, but as someone who is in Christ. So very different to say, hey, I," you know, 1 Corinthians 6 example, they're off visiting prostitutes. Are you even a Christian? He says, hey, you are a Christian. Why are you doing a thing that is fundamentally at odds with, with who you are?
0: Yes, and what's so amazing about what Paul does, I'm so glad you brought that up, because if Paul were to come at them, and if his if, if if his driving motive was, you must not be a Christian, then he's playing right into that guilt-driven or stumbling block that many people find themselves caught and trapped in sin. He's more or less saying, you need to clean that up in order to prove that you're a Christian, not— yeah. You are a Christian. This isn't how you actually live. So he's appealing by grace and love to, yeah. <laughs> I believe, the best in you. Let's see if we can get your life to line up with what's actually true of you, yeah. not you need to prove to me or anybody. I mean, I, I, and that's what I, I keep seeing when I I, I, I mean, it's like I'm seeing more and more things in the New Testament that Paul's stance toward people was just so Gracious and compassionate, and his willingness to go the extra mile yeah. to bring people along, I think, was is very not only beautiful but just so so well mirrors what Jesus does and absolutely. has already done for us.
1: And he's he's uh, absolutely right. And his his refusal to use a weapon that so many of us want to use, which is deficit motivation, so yep. he leaves that weapon at the door because it's so often in parenting and in pastoring and in one another ministry we want to say there's a gap between who you are and who God wants you to be and I want you to focus on that gap and to feel the guilt of the deficit between the is and the ought and Paul flips that because of his understanding in Christ he says no they they I'm not going to use deficit motivation I'm going to I'm going to work from fullness to obedience because you are in Christ loved of the Father therefore uh, flee sin rather than until you flee sin, you can't claim these things. It's so, so, so different. and I think it, it's um it's a weapon that we often don't want to relinquish because it's so immediately powerful, but I think it's short term terrible because every time you motivate someone f- from a deficit and say you're not really as loved as you think you are, um, you're just compounding over, over the long term a, a sense that, that salvation is really not real. And uh, so I think if we're in it for the long haul, we want to see real righteousness and holiness flourish. It needs to come from fullness and not from not from um, uh, deficit.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think what's so powerful then about the gathering of of churches and of believers and the encouragement, you know, that Paul, Paul not only started the churches and some of them he has the chance to visit and then he's there with people that he, led to Christ and wants to empower them and equip them to faithfully live out this new reality with other believers. And I think that you did a great job, I felt, in your book about talking about why why the church is needed. Why, why do we need to gather? And of course, we're attempting to live out in a community this new creation that no place else on the earth could witness the the beauty and the the compassion and the openness and the mercy with such diverse people mm-hmm. than a place where we don't have to fight identity issues and we, you know, power of place and any of that power struggles, control. It's just Jesus has taken care of that. And in a community who has their identity in him doesn't have to strive um, mm-hmm. to, to prove anything to anyone. And I, I really feel like, um, you know, our our culture here in America is enduring a lot of of unrest and instability, and um, there's a lot of fear, a lot of anger driving things in our culture right now. And I'm noticing um, people's responses to the unrest is exposing um, insecurities that people have. Um, mm-hmm and it's exposing fears and i i keep reading the new testament and seeing all of these things that jesus has come to deal with and it's it's maybe for the first time in many people's lives where they're seeing the level of fear the level of insecurity the deep seated anger that they didn't know was there until somebody you know poked them the wrong way and so um just listening to you talk about the church and how we all find our 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 identity in christ is so so needed, I think, in our time, at least in our country. Um, if I could just, I just kind of want to wrap it up maybe with one last thought. You, um, your, your very last chapter, um, Union with Christ, Resurrection, and the End of the World. I was curious, um, you kind of launched into a, a, a discussion which sort of wrapped the book up well, but knowing that you wrote Raised Forever, Jesus' Resurrection and Ours a couple of years after this book. Was this last chapter sort of the launching point for that next book?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a very astute observation. That's right. So I think I think the uh, that next book on uh, resurrection, uh Jesus' resurrection and ours was really kind of the twelve inch remix of that final chapter of um of One Forever, Well Spotted.
0: Okay. Well, no, it's just, it, as I read it, I thought, oh, have I, oh, I've read this before. And I'm like, oh, of course I read it before. I read it in your other book. <laughs> so, um, but you, you, you know, you, you looked at this. I just wanted to read one, one uh, little two, two, three sentences here. Um, because you said, Jesus, you know, you, you started the chapter with, hey, we, you know, have these ideas about in Christ and we think we know what that means. But all of a sudden we look to what life's going to be like after we die and things start getting fuzzy. Um, And yet it's the same principle at work. If we're united with Christ in a death like his, we will be raised with Christ Christ in a resurrection like his. But um, you said that Jesus is the last Adam, the new man, the best of the crop to come. And you were tying in, I think, with some of Paul's language about sowing seeds and it coming to life. Um, He is God's new humanity par excellence, humanity faithfully bearing God's image. Jesus is humanity with all the sin and death and brokenness taken out of the system. And that that statement Rory was just awesome. And and I I I love you you have actually shaped my thinking a lot on the resurrection and um this chapter was helpful your your book Raised Forever has been very helpful taking the ideas of what everybody thought was going to happen at the end of history. God did in the middle of history with one person, Jesus. And by putting us in Christ, if, if Christ is the new humanity with all of the sin and death and brokenness taken out, then the goal for the church is to grow into a body of people who live as if the sin, death, and brokenness was already taken out of the system, Mm. which is such a beautiful calling. It's a humbling calling, but it's such a hope-filled reality that we don't have to fight death. We don't have to fight sin being pointed out in our lives. We don't have to fight, you know, we don't have to defend because we've died. And, And Jesus is now this model and and not a model to follow but but rather he's the first fruits uh, what mm-hmm. what happened to him is going to happen to us and it is glory i mean you you took some time to walk through 1st corinthians 15 but i i tell you i would only hear 1st corinthians 15 once a year at easter and it was never to the level that you walked through with uh, in the book so do you, you have any kind of concluding thoughts on on why the resurrection and and what hope and power that gives to us now
1: yeah that's uh, well put. they I had a very similar experience where in you know, one Corinthians fifteen ironically the thing that it's preached on is the very thing that it's assuming is already true so uh, one Corinthians one to eleven uh, had this pithy little outline of the historical basis for the resurrection Um, And we often hear it preached as if that was a thing that wasn't agreed upon. And yet, to the the people to whom that book is written, they already agree on that. They absolutely have staked their lives on the resurrection of Jesus. The thing that they do not believe is that in him, we will also be raised to have a resurrection like him. So Paul's argument with them is not, hey, here's proof for the resurrection of Jesus. It's, hey, guys, given that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, why do you have this ridiculous idea that... um, our future is fundamentally different from that of Christ because uh, the, the teaching there is that, that as you say, that Paul's picture is that Christ is the first fruit of the coming harvest. So if you look at a tree and it's, you know, the first orange comes in the season, the rest of the tree is going to be oranges. And the the resurrection of Jesus happens, you know, eschatologically out of time, happens in the middle of history as the first fruit of what we uh, what we long for, and so in in Christian faith, we don't just have a hope in a thing that might one day happen. We are in the middle of something that's already started, and that's a very different thing. Uh, to, to hope for something that might happen one day is um, is to look for look to the future where a a thing might might happen, and whereas we're in the middle of a process that's already begun. And so, as you say, as we do church together and, and live the Christian life, we're not uh, anticipating a distant future, but participating in something that's already started, um, which I think is, a, is is true, but also a much more exciting way to live the Christian life, that a, a unstoppable force of resurrection has already been unleashed in our world. And when we live and participate in that in our lives and in our communities, um, we're bearing testimony to a reality that has begun and will one day consume all things?
0: That's such a great way to put it. And and I think that is a hope-filled message that we both have the privilege of embodying and resting in. And then we have, um, through our witness and through our trust in that promise, share something with the rest of the world. I mean, the world, anytime people are in upheaval or... Um, hurt or pain, it's ultimately because we, at the root, fear losing something that we believe brings us life. And yeah. in the resurrection, we see that not even death can prevent God from from bringing things back to life. So it, it's just this invitation, as I understand it, to be as totally open and as free for him to put to death as whatever he wants in us, because he's going to bring it all back and it's going to be better <laughs> in the resurrection than it, than it was prior. Um, Amen. so yeah. So you've got, you said you had, um, a couple, a couple books that you're working on. Would you take a minute to share those with us?
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So that uh, a book I'm working on with a friend at the moment is, um, we really wanted to write a book for our non-Christian friends, and particularly he he's from Ireland, I'm from Australia, uh, particularly and most of our non-Christian friends are, are very secular uh, people, and uh, we wanted to uh, write, write a book that was our best shot at commending the Christian faith to secular people. And so we're doing that through the Apostles' Creed, um, maybe counterintuitively um, taking that ancient creed and um, trying to expound it, um, to invite our you know our neighbors in to um, to the christian uh, faith and we we're, we're approaching that in um uh, it has got some apologetics in it so there's a little bit of you know defense of this here and that there and answering some objections and so on but we really see it more as an invitation to say christianity is a world view it's a it's a complete account of all of reality and we think the best way to commend that to our non Christian friends is to invite them in, to say, hey, come, come step in and look around. And I think the the Apostles' Creed is great for that because it talks about things that evangelistic books often don't talk about, like the, um, you know, Born of the Virgin Mary and Suffered Under Pontius Pilate and uh, the Resurrection of the Dead and the Life of the World to Come. And so we're working on that and, and hoping to have that out soon and um, especially for um, maybe that slightly more bookish um, uh uh, non-Christian friend, uh, that's that's who we're writing for. And then the, okay. other, the other one is I'm um, working on a book on food in the Bible. I think, again, probably a similar sort of person, maybe um, uh, to th- that sort of foodie uh, type of um, uh, set of sensibilities. And I think that the Bible has so much to say about food and, uh, and so much of the gospel, including, you know, in the Lord's Supper, an entire meal. When Jesus wanted to explain his death, um, before he gave us, um, you know, he gave us a meal. This tactical, tactile, um, uh, immersive experience of eating bread and drinking wine, and um, you know, and then the Old Testament with the Passover, and, and so on. I wanted to. I thought a book exploring food in the Bible might be a a, a gentle, winsome way for Christians and non-Christians to to come together and um, and share food and um, explore. Um, the claims of uh, of Christ together.
0: Oh wow, those both sound great. Do you have have des, um, desired publication dates for both of those?
1: Uh, I've got. To start, um, we're hoping to have the um, the manuscript finished um, for the the Apostles' Creed one uh, over the next few few weeks. I'm actually heading up to a, a cabin um, tonight to try to bash some more of that out. So I, I hope we'll have a manuscript done um, this year, and so I'd, I'd love to see it on bookshelves. Um, you know, there will be editing and so on, but hopefully on bookshelves, um, sometime in 2021.
0: Okay. Wow. Well, that's really exciting. Rory, thank you for taking the time to talk. Thank you for your ministry, your desire again, to bring heady things down for the church and just to serve people in ways that they can understand the privileges they'd be given in Jesus. So, um, yeah, and I'm glad it worked out for us to, to talk. And uh, connection was pretty good. So yeah, it's,
1: it's been really fun to talk to you.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for for being on the show. And um, maybe we'll get together at a future point with one of your other books um, sometime sometime later. Lovely. Great, great talking to you. Thanks. Bye. 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 Well, that wraps up yet another by the book episode. Again, I'm super thankful to Rory for taking the time to talk with me. And I hope that you were able to receive even a fraction of the value of that conversation. If so, then this was definitely another successful by the book episode. I did want to let you know, listeners, that in the next several weeks, I'm having multiple conversations with other authors some that I am really excited about and I won't share names yet just to make sure that those things actually happen and that their schedules continue to allow for us to connect. But um, the, the direction things are headed, you're in for some real treats in the, in the months to come on, on these by the book episodes. So thank you for continuing to tune in. Thank you for your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your interactions. Thank you again for anyone who has left me a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. Thank you for those who've reached out to me via email, unbindingthebible at gmail.com. You can give me questions, comments, thoughts, pushback, um, books that you have been impacted by that you think I ought to read as well. And we can have some conversations there. So thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next week.